welcome to the Fit for the Future podcast, which helps you navigate this fast-changing world by bringing you ideas, information, interviews, and insights for being fit for the future. Here's your host, Gihan Pereira. Hello, everyone. This is Gihan Pereira. It's early January 2022, so let me start by wishing you Happy New Year in many parts of the world. This is a time when we start thinking ahead for the next 12 months. And uh, also, in many parts of the world, we've had a break over Christmas and the New Year. And here in Australia, it's a big summer break. And it's uh, especially here where I live in Perth, Western Australia, it's really been a heat wave. Over Christmas Day, Boxing Day and the public holidays around that, uh, we've had temperatures in the 40s, uh, more than 40 degrees Celsius. So for us, anyway, it's been beach weather, barbecue weather, shorts and thongs weather, and that's going to continue for a bit. And also for many people and organisations, this is a time when we look ahead for the next 12 months and think what 22 is going to have in store for us. Um, I don't necessarily believe that we should be doing this at the start of every year. I mean, what's so special about the 1st of January? We can be looking ahead at any time. But for many people, this is a time where we sometimes just make superficial New Year's resolutions. And sometimes we make some really strong goals for our short-term, medium-term and long-term future. It might also be a time when you can look back and reflect on the year that's been, the couple of years that have been, which have been, of course, very disruptive for many of us and for people all around the world as well. One of the exercises that I do at the end of each year leading into the next year is to look back through my older blog posts and look at things that I can delete, not because they're inaccurate or wrong, but simply because they might not be relevant anymore. And I remember doing this uh, many, many years ago, maybe about eight or nine years ago, when I made a significant change in my business direction. I deleted 600 of my old blog posts from the five to six years before that. And it's not because they were inaccurate, not because they were wrong, not because I was embarrassed by them but simply because they didn't serve the direction that I was taking for the future. And I suggest you do the same as well. And today I want to talk a little bit about that and not being constrained by the past when you're setting course for the future. Um, Anyway, I did the same exercise um, a few weeks ago, uh, leading into the end of 2021. And I look back at old blog posts, old webinar recordings, old podcasts uh, from pre-COVID times. And interestingly, I found that I didn't delete as much as I thought I would. I thought COVID-19 has changed everything and therefore I'd have to delete a lot because so much of that wasn't relevant anymore. It turned out not to be the case. Uh, Many of the things that I wrote about two, three, five years ago are still relevant. It's just that COVID-19 has accelerated some of those trends. And if anything, the things that I deleted were some of the warnings that I was giving three years ago, four years ago, five years ago, about disruption in the future. So uh, I used to tell this story about how we take our Cocker Spaniel, Jessie, for a run in our local park and we let her off the leash and she'd run all around the park, even places where you're supposed to keep your dog on the leash, but there was no way to stop her from doing that. And I used to say, the dogs are off the leash now. Disruption is coming, like it or not. And of course, in 2020 and 2021, we realized that that actually happened. So I don't have to tell that story anymore because we all know what it's like to be disrupted by some external force. Um, I used to talk about the importance of becoming more digital because our world is becoming more digital and there's going to be more artificial intelligence and we're going to have more automation. And then, of course, as a result of COVID-19 and wanting to make sure that we had less physical contact, uh, our world did become much, much more digital. In February 
February 2020, I wrote a blog post a few weeks before COVID-19 came to Australia. And the, the, the blog post said, what if offices became illegal? And it was really a thought experiment saying that the office was simply something that we've got used to over the last 200 years. And, and maybe it didn't have to be the mainstream workplace of the future. And then, of course, a few weeks later, offices did become illegal as a result of the pandemic. So those sort of warnings that I was giving and trying to get people to think a little bit differently, we all know now what it's like to face massive disruption. And as a result of that, we've had to go through this major crisis and then go through a phase of recovery. And then we're going to move into this period of growth. Many people and organizations have already gone through that crisis recovery growth sequence, but many others still haven't. And here in Australia, I know the Australian government gets a lot of criticism for the way that it's handled the pandemic, but objectively, if you look at our position globally, we have been one of the most successful countries in managing the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, it's certainly, if you look at the largest economies in the world, Australia and China have done the best in managing the pandemic. And uh, that's really credit to some of the actions that we took as a country at the start of the pandemic. Now, of course, I'm very, very happy that we as a country have managed the pandemic so well, and we as a world, through the miracle of science, have created vaccines that are protecting humanity. But if there's one downside to that, it's that it's only taken two years. Now, of course, we don't want the pandemic to drag on forever. And if we didn't have a pandemic at all, many, many people's lives would be so much better. So I'm not in any way saying that I wish the pandemic would go on for longer. In fact, I wish it had been over before now. But it's an interesting thought experiment. If the pandemic had continued for five or ten years, what things might we do differently? Because one of the challenges and one of the traps that many people fall into is, given that it's only been two years, many people are thinking about how do we get back to doing the things that we used to. And if we're thinking about we might be doing things differently, it's only fiddling around the edges. So people want to go back to international travel. And you understand that you might have to do extra testing and extra visa requirements, extra vaccination requirements. But international travel is going to go back to the way it was. Bosses and employers are trying to drag people back into the offices. And is that the right thing? And maybe they'll allow a little bit more flexibility, but they want the office to be the main workplace of the future. Is that the right thing to happen? We're still going to have many of the challenges and problems that we have in our society, in our businesses, in our organizations. And today, I'm going to suggest to you that you think a little bit differently. We've all gone through a lot of disruption and change over the last two years. And as a result of that, our lives have been shaken up. And we can think about how do we put a band-aid on them to get back to the way things were. Or we can look at this as an opportunity to shake things up in our future as well. I'm not suggesting that we all go out and try to solve all the problems of the world, but I want to give you some really practical strategies and techniques that you can use to think and act differently about the future without being constrained by the past. So today I want to talk about opening up and I'm really talking about opening up your mindset for yourself and your team so you think differently about the future. So let me give you an example from Chile in South America. Chile at the moment is going through the process of completely rewriting their constitution. And the reason they're rewriting it is because the constitution they have in place now was put in place by Augusto Pinochet. 
who was a dictator in Chile in the 1980s, 1990s, and he rammed through a new constitution in the 1980s. And now the people of Chile want to rewrite their constitution. And they're going through a process now of putting together a team of people, an assembly of people who are rewriting the constitution. Now, the way they're doing it is they've elected about 150 people to form this assembly to rewrite the constitution. But part of the rules for that assembly of 150 people is that it's an equal representation of men and women. And I think that's a really good thing that they've decided to have equal representation of men and women. Because, of course, if society is made up of roughly equal representation of men and women, doesn't it make sense that we have that same mix of people and backgrounds and lived experiences writing the constitution that's going to govern their country for decades and maybe even centuries in the future? So Chile, if you like, was in that fortunate position that they needed to rewrite their constitution because the previous one was written by a dictator. So it was a crisis and they were responding to the crisis and they said, let's throw away the past and let's create what we want in the future without being constrained by that. So I'm suggesting don't wait for that crisis. Open up and don't be constrained as much by the past when you're setting course for the future. Let me give you an example, perhaps from your childhood. Perhaps you believed in Santa Claus and you thought that the Santa at the local shopping centre was real. Um, you, you thought that he mysteriously delivered gifts on Christmas Eve. You might have even been disappointed or maybe even devastated when you learned the truth. And maybe you might even recall an older sibling laughing at you when you were finally let in on the secret. Now, it's easy now, looking back on that as an adult, to dismiss that belief because you could say, well, I was just a child and now I know better. Now, the danger comes when you stubbornly cling on to other beliefs like that. Just like your belief in Santa Claus, they just aren't true anymore. So it's easy to say, well, now I know the truth. How, how childish was I to believe that? But there are many other things that you might still believe to be true, but aren't true anymore. And now it's not your siblings who are laughing at you. It's those savvy startup companies that never had that belief. And they're now laughing all the way to the bank at your expense because you're still operating on an old belief system. Um, let me try and draw a picture for you. Imagine two circles, one inside the other. So the smaller circle, the one inside, is the one that is all the stuff that you know. The bigger circle outside that is what you think you know. And just keep in mind that what you think you know is always greater than what you know. And that gap between that, the area between the two circles, so that represents the things that we believe to be true, but just aren't true. This is where your confidence exceeds your competence. Or you could call it your delusion zone. Josh Billings said, it ain't what you don't know that gets you into trouble. It's what you know for sure that just ain't so. So if you want to be future ready, do everything you can to shrink your delusion zone. And I'm talking about you and your team as well. If you're a leader or a business owner, this applies to your team as well. We all have these blind spots. We all have this delusion zone, the things that we believe are true that just aren't true anymore. See, there's a myth that if you're an experienced business leader, you're a dinosaur from a bygone era. And the story goes that, you know, it's, it's inevitable that you're going to get disrupted by younger, more diverse, more tech savvy, new thinkers. Now, that might be true, but it doesn't have to be the case. It's certainly true in some cases, but there are many experienced, established, 
okay, let me use the word old, leaders who do have the right mindset to lead now, and they're more than willing to adapt to the new way of doing business. The problem isn't their intent, it's assumed competence. So it's not that you don't know a lot, you do. It's just that some of those things just aren't true anymore. They used to be true, and they were practical and insightful and wise in the past, so it's natural to believe that they're still true. But it's not always the case. And the future belongs to possibility thinkers who see opportunities where others see risk and threat. Now, there's no reason why you can't be one of those leaders, but it might mean letting go of some of your old beliefs. Absolutely, learn from the past if it's serving you, if it helps you build for the future, but otherwise, let it go. So I'm going to talk about five differences between the way that leaders typically think at established organizations and disruptive organizations. It doesn't apply to everybody, but I'm making this distinction because many established organizations have this old way of thinking and disruptive organizations have a new way of thinking. Remember, it's not true across the board. Number one, sunk costs versus best returns. So instead of valuing resources based on their past costs, disruptive thinkers choose the assets and resources that give them the best return now. Change manager versus change agent. So instead of just managing change and adapting to it, which is what many established leaders and organizations do, disruptive thinkers embrace change and lead it. Obstacles versus opportunities. So again, this is about change. Instead of finding problems and obstacles and everything new and different, which is often the tendency for established leaders, disruptive thinkers see possibility and opportunity in things that are new and different. The next one is pushing products versus solving problems. So instead of a focus on existing products and services, disruptive thinkers go back to basics and examine the problems that they're solving for customers. And the last one, next step versus quantum leap. It's very easy in an established organization to only think about making incremental next step improvements, fiddling around the edges, whereas disruptive thinkers take quantum leaps that leave the past behind. As I said, all of these differences involve a shift in mindset. It is all in your mind, but that doesn't mean it's easy. And there are two reasons for that. First, it does mean that you have to be willing to let go of some of your beliefs. And that's easier said than done. So when you discovered that Santa Claus was a fraud or a fake, you also discovered that he was never real. But many of your other beliefs are based on hard, concrete, fact-based evidence from the past. And it's not so easy to admit that they might not be true anymore. And because it affects your beliefs, it might even affect your own identity. And that's very hard to take for many people because it becomes personal. The second thing is there are, there are real costs and real risks and real consequences to making big changes. You can't just discard your assets, fire your staff, ignore obstacles, destroy entire product ranges, or transform your organizational culture overnight. You just can't do it. The smart, savvy, disruptive startup entrepreneur, they don't have all those responsibilities, accountabilities, resources, and stakeholders. But in this competitive race, that entrepreneur, she's fast and trim and nimble, and you're not. She's racing out of the blocks while you're still in the change room, putting on your running shoes. But just because it isn't easy to change your mindset doesn't mean that you shouldn't. In fact, I think you should. You just can't afford to give her too much of a head start. So act now. And I'm going to talk about how we do this. So let's look at each of those five areas. The first one is to beware your strengths. 
because your biggest assets blind you to other opportunities and possibly better opportunities. Let me tell you a story. At the start of the 20th century, James Casey, who was a young entrepreneur in Washington in the USA, founded what he called the American Messenger Service. So he was competing with the US Postal Service, which is a government postal service. In Australia, it's equivalent of Australia Post. So that company, which is now known as UPS, was the original disruptor in package delivery because Casey was obsessed with efficiency, how to optimize driving routes, how to how to minimize the number of steps from the delivery truck to the customer's front door and so on. Now, 100 years later, as a package delivery company, UPS was really well positioned to leverage the online retail space. And of course, like most postal services, this business has grown with the rise of online shopping, but it's also suffered low margins and lost market share to two other disruptors. You've probably heard of them. The first was Federal Express, FedEx, as it's more commonly known. So instead of trying to out-optimize UPS with its fleet of drivers and delivery trucks, FedEx took a completely different approach. They had a fleet of private airplanes operating from hubs around the USA. And using that infrastructure, they could deliver on their promise of when it absolutely positively has to be there overnight, which was their slogan. And that gave FedEx a competitive advantage. But even that wasn't enough. FedEx in turn was disrupted by Amazon, who raised the stakes by offering same-day delivery, even two-hour or one-hour delivery in some cities in the USA. So Amazon customers who pay for Amazon Prime membership, which is around about 100 bucks a year, even get free shipping for most of these services. So in the same way that FedEx didn't have UPS's fleet of trucks, Amazon didn't try to disrupt FedEx with a faster air delivery fleet. Instead, it took advantages of emerging business models like, you know, like the gig economy, for example. Uh, it has a service called Amazon Flex, where individuals can act as couriers, like Uber drivers but for package delivery. And Amazon continues to innovate because it knows that that strength that it's got could be a future weakness. So here's the point. Traditionally, the strength of an organization was directly related to its asset base. Things like you know, traditional accounting assets, equipment, stock, premises, cash, other securities, intellectual property. Um, less tangible assets like your brand, your reputation, your license to operate in a particular industry, and even intangible assets such as talented staff, systems and processes, and a positive work culture. Now these are all assets, don't get me wrong, because they did contribute to the organization's success in the past but sometimes our biggest assets hold us back from something better. Let me give you some examples. Now, for example, owning premises gives you a local presence, no landlord, more control over the building. Those are assets, that's good. But it could be holding you back from a better location, opening other locations or letting staff work from home when you're paying a lot of money for commercial real estate. Another example, you might have a strong brand, but it could be holding you back from doing something really daring because you're scared that it might damage your brand. The positive culture in your office is an asset, but it could be holding you back from expanding your team to include hybrid work and more remote workers. Now, there's no doubt that building these assets took effort and money and is difficult to let go. But think of these as sunk costs. They shouldn't determine what's best for the organization now and in the future. Your biggest assets are also your biggest weaknesses because they blind you to other possibly better opportunities. In the past, they protected you from newcomers, but now they might only offer a false sense of security. So the way to think differently is to assess 
each of the assets in your organization and ask this question. If we didn't have this, what would we do differently? For example, if we didn't already have a website, what website would we build? Would we even build a website at all? If we didn't have these systems and processes for delivering this service, what service would we really offer? If we didn't have a database of loyal customers that we might upset, what radical change could we make to our products, services and operations? If we didn't already have established agreements with our suppliers, what agreements would we create now? Would we even choose these suppliers or would we choose different suppliers to meet our business needs as they are now? So it's not always easy to discard assets that aren't serving you well anymore, but at least you're asking the right question and that's the first step to making a better decision about their future. So I've got three questions for you when you're thinking ahead. You think of this as exercise and activity questions to do for yourself and your team. So which assets in your team or your organization are really liabilities because they're blinding you from other opportunities? Question two, if a smart startup company without this asset wanted the same benefit that it provides, what would they do? Third question, what would you do if you didn't care about, let's fill in the blank, affecting the share price, damaging your brand, losing your best people? How else could you achieve the same result? Now you can think of these as hypothetical questions. As I said, you're not gonna fire everybody or burn all your assets, but it's useful to get you thinking a little bit differently. Second area, lead the change. So see change as an opportunity to embrace, not a threat to avoid. Let me tell you a story which has a personal touch to it as well. In March 2014, there's a cafe in Terrigal, just north of Sydney, that created a new policy in response to something that was happening in their community. So Luke Prast, who's a manager of the Bella Natural Food Company, that's a cafe, was annoyed because many customers were coming in with their smartphones, which are relatively new at the time, and they were distracted. So when they're placing a coffee order, they were always looking at their phone and he couldn't take the order. So he said, I like to provide customer service. I like to greet my customers with a smile and have a chat, but it's a bit hard when their attention is all on their phone. So what he decided to do was he started charging customers extra for using their phone when they're placing their order at the counter. He even had a sign. He had a sign on a big post-it note and he stuck it on the cash register and he said 50 cents surcharge for being on the phone at the counter. It's rude. Now he said it was an instant hit with his other customers and with his staff and with the cafe owner and he reported a strong positive response on their Facebook page. The story even made it into national media. At about the same time, at my local cafe in Perth, called Juggler, and it's far busier than the one in Terrigal, the owner, Nino Lavagetta, faced a similar situation, but he took a different approach. Instead of penalizing customers for using his phones, he teamed up with the team at Rewardle, which is a startup company, to reward them. So this is a time when the whole idea of coffee loyalty apps were pretty new and Rewardle was one of the first. So customers downloaded the Rewardle app to their phone and then they could use their phone as a loyalty card. You could earn points every time you um, bought a a coffee there. You could even load up your phone with money so you didn't have to carry cash around with you, which again was a fairly novel idea at the time. 
So as you know, these kind of facilities are really common now, but at the time, there was a pretty bold innovation, and Nino was willing to invest the time and money to introduce that technology and educate his customers to use it. So here's my point. Both of those businesses faced the same change in their environment, and they both acted on the change. And both of them considered their actions to be successful, but the two actions were very different, and they demonstrate two very different attitudes to change. In one case, the business owner took action to resist the change and restore the status quo. In the second case, he took action to embrace the change and find opportunity in it. And my point is this, that change is inevitable and your attitude to change will determine your long-term success. The most successful people see change as an opportunity to embrace, not a threat to avoid. In fact, I reckon you can deal with change in six ways. And you think about a situation in your past where you've dealt with change, and we've dealt with a lot of it in the last few years. Which of these six things did you do when you were dealing with the change? Number one is to ignore the change. You may not even be aware that it's happening. The second thing you can do is avoid the change and hope it'll go away. Of course, this is risky. Sticking your head in the sand and hoping the change will pass you by is rarely a recipe for success. The third thing that you can do is resist the change and try to restore the status quo. That's what Luke Price did in his cafe in Terrigal. Now this can work, but it tends to leave you vulnerable. The fourth thing that you can do is adapt to the change and try to work around it so it doesn't get in the way. In the cafe example, that might be telling your staff that if somebody's on their phone and they're distracted, you just politely serve the next person in line. The fifth thing you can do, which is what Nino did, is to embrace the change and find a way to take advantage of it. And the last thing that you do, which very few teams and organizations do, is to lead the change by being the person or the organization that creates the change. So then you don't have to respond to it because you created it. So the first three are just coping mechanisms. They're ways to cope with the change and react to it. They can work in the short term, but they still leave you in a weak, vulnerable position for the future. So the people who ignore change, they're the ones who tend to be disengaged at work. They turn up and put in the hours, but they don't really care about the results. They might even be unaware that the world is changing around them. Next are those who avoid change. So they cling on to what used to work and they desperately hope it'll continue to work. And eventually they become cynical and they just go through the motions at work. Those who resist change, they're, they're at least making an effort, but I think it's an effort in the wrong direction. For example, the manager of that cafe in Terrigal, he clearly saw the change and chose to do something about it, but his actions were just about going back to the, you know, the good old days. Now, the next three approaches to change, ad adapting to it, embracing it, and leading it, are much healthier and much more positive for the future. So if you want to be resilient, adapt to change, find ways to manage it effectively. Even better, embrace change and see it as a source of new opportunities. And look, if you want to be truly innovative, lead the change so you're at the forefront of change and everybody else is following in your trail. Okay, here are my three questions for you to think about for yourself and your team. Number one, think about a situation in your life, a recent situation where you had to deal with change. What approach did you take? Which of those six things did you do? And how could you have dealt with it differently? Was there a better approach you could have taken? Question two, what do you need to do now to ensure that you and your team deal with change differently in the future? And question three, what's your team's culture in dealing with change? And if it's not forward-looking, so if you're trying to go back to the status quo or even worse, what can you do about it? The next thing to do 
is to think possible. So look for opportunity and possibility rather than threat or risk in every situation. Let me tell you a story. This goes back to 2017. On the 20th of September, Hurricane Maria hit Puerto Rico and wreaked havoc in its trail. So most of the island, they lost electricity, mobiles, phones, cell towers were destroyed, so communication became difficult, and emergency services struggled to provide assistance. Now, in the midst of all this devastation, there was a restaurant owner and chef, Jose Andres, who went to Puerto Rico with a simple goal. His goal was this, feed the hungry. And he tells his story in a TED talk. And in the talk, he describes how, despite all the problems and the crippling infrastructure problems he faced, he mobilized the chefs of Puerto Rico to provide food for the people. And as he describes it, he says, we began feeding the people of Puerto Rico on a Monday. We served a thousand meals. By the next Sunday, we were doing 25,000. And it didn't stop there. The request for help grew from 25,000 a day to 50,000, and eventually almost 70,000 meals a day. And he didn't plan for it, but without planning for it, Jose Andres was in charge of the biggest restaurant in the world. And a month later, with the help of more than 7,000 volunteers working in 18 kitchens, he and his team had served more than 2 million meals. In a disaster zone, in the middle of the worst recorded natural disaster to ever strike Puerto Rico, where emergency services were struggling to cope with the devastation and politicians were arguing over whether Puerto Ricans deserved as much help as other Americans, Jose Andres and his team made a real difference. And it wasn't just accomplished by one person. He wasn't a lone hero. And he freely acknowledges the support of all the people that he enlisted in the cause. In fact, he praises their own desire to make a difference. He said, I began calling all the chefs of Puerto Rico and everybody was like, yeah, let's not plan. Let's not meet. Let's start cooking. Together, they made a difference because Jose Andres was a possibility thinker. Where other people only saw the problems, he saw possibility. And where others saw risk, he saw opportunity. And here's my point. Create a habit of possibility thinking. Practice thinking about what's possible rather than what could go wrong. Now, possibility thinking lies on a spectrum. So at one end, it's the impossible mindset where you only ever see problems, threats and risks. And that's not very useful. But I must say that the other end is not very useful either. That's the inevitable mindset where you're only reactive to change and you resign yourself to whatever it brings. But the truth is that life rarely operates at either extreme. The real gold lies in the infinite array of possibilities beyond the impossible and the inevitable. Let me tell you about an experiment that I did. About seven or eight years ago, when not many people had heard about self-driving cars, I was thinking about uh, how would people respond to them. And uh, this was in the days when Google was one of the early pioneers in this area and had a photograph of one of Google's early models of a self-driving car. And I used to take that around on my phone and show it to people. Now, when I showed it to kids, so I showed it to my niece, Abby, who was around about seven or eight at the time, and they usually responded by saying, oh, that's cute or that's cool, because it did look like his little bubble car. It had kind of like a smiley face on the front. And that these kids had never driven, of course. So they kind of liked the idea of a little car coming and picking them up and taking them and their friends wherever they want to go. But interestingly, when I showed the same picture to adults, many of them, not all of them, but many of them, their first reaction was usually, oh no, that's a bit scary, yes but. So the children are going yes and, and then consider the possibilities that self-driving cars create, and many adults are going yes but, and they look for reasons why self-driving cars won't work. You know, things like, 
We like driving. We'll never want to give it up. Um, self-driving cars will never be as safe as human drivers. Uh, what if a self-driving car gets a mind of its own and kidnaps my kids when taking them to school or gets hacked by somebody? And that's partly because adults are better at anticipating risks and dangers, but it's also because children are often more open to possibilities. Now, both approaches are valid, but it's dangerous to ignore possibilities and only see threats and risks. So if your initial reaction to self-driving cars is more at the yes, but end, in other words, you're immediately thinking of the problems, the difficulties, the challenges, the risks and the threats, you run the risk of dismissing their potential impact positive impact on many parts of organizations and society. So I'm going to recommend that you start by thinking cool or if you're not quite there maybe you just go hmm interesting tell me more. That's what makes you a possibility thinker and you'll be better able to adapt embrace and even lead the changes that self-driving cars and other technology and other changes bring. There are plenty of people who can tell you why something won't work. But the people who will be most valuable in the future are the possibility thinkers. So look for opportunity and possibility rather than risk or threat in every situation. I'm not saying ignore the risks or threats, but look for opportunity and possibility first. So here are my three questions for you and your team. Number one, what new things, technology, trends, social changes, have you already identified as opportunities? Number two, what new things have you identified as threats or risks? And you may have. What possibilities do they offer as well? And number three, what other new things have you not considered at all that could offer possibilities for you? Okay, the next area. Solve their problems. Understand the real problems that you're really solving for real customers. Um, I remember reading a book in the 1980s from a customer service expert, Carl Albrecht, and he said, if you're not serving the customer, you'd better be serving somebody who is. Let me tell you another story. This story about a child, Kenneth Shinazuka. And when he was six, he saw a family friend of his injured when he fell in the bathroom while visiting Kenneth's family. And he remembered that incident. He was only six at the time, but he started thinking about how to prevent that kind of fall in the future. Now, you can imagine, as a six-year-old, he didn't have the resources to solve the problem. I mean, he did have one idea. He thought about embedding a motion detection system in bathroom tiles, but of course, he didn't have the resources to see that through to fruition. But that inspiration stayed with him. And then later, at the ripe old age of 15, he invented a smart device to prevent falls. Now, this was a pair of socks that somebody wears and then a caregiver is alerted when somebody with Alzheimer's disease tries to get out of bed. So that year, when he was 15, he was one of 15 finalists at Google's Global Science Fair, and he won the $50,000 Scientific American Science in Action Award. And Kenneth's idea for his invention didn't just come out of nowhere. He was inspired by trying to solve a real problem in his family. So his grandfather had Alzheimer's disease, and his condition was gradually deteriorating. And his primary caregiver was Kenneth's aunt, and she was struggling to cope because she had to remain alert every night in case her father stepped out of bed and wandered around the house. So faced with this problem in his family, Kenneth looked for a solution, but he couldn't find one, so he invented it. So instead of having motion detectors in the floor tiles, which was the idea that he had when he was six, he thought about a pressure sensor in a pair of socks. And the pressure of a foot landing on the floor would trigger the sensor, and that would wirelessly send an alert to his aunt's smartphone, and she'd wake up. 
Now, of course, there's still a lot of work for Kenneth to get his idea from a concept into workable solution. He had to create the sensor, design the circuit, build a smartphone app, but he persisted. And he eventually created the device that let his aunt sleep more soundly at night. And that device is now commercially available. It's called Safe Wonder. Anybody in a similar situation can buy it for $200. But Kenneth didn't set out to create a business product. He was just trying to solve a real problem in his family. And here's the point. Many businesses, most organizations, I would say, start with a strong customer focus. They obsess about how they can solve their customers' problems or help them achieve their goals. But over time, as the organization grows and needs to support itself, that obsession fades and other, other work which seems to be essential takes its place. So again, imagine a kid. Imagine a budding entrepreneur primary school kid who's selling lemonade on a hot day from the footpath outside her home to people walking by. All she wants to do is help them solve their problem, which is they're thirsty. Now, if her little business grows into a large organization, she'll spend more and more time solving other people's problems, whether it's the local council, the ATO, other government agencies, staff members, suppliers, shareholders, media, and community groups. And the thirsty customer who was once her top priority, soon falls down that picking order. She spends all her time and energy serving other people to keep the business running, and she might forget that its original purpose was to solve a customer's problem. Now, it's not inherently wrong to solve other people's problems in any organization, especially if you're in a leadership role. It only becomes a problem when that doesn't ultimately help a customer solve their problem as well. Too many businesses fall in love with their own products, services, systems, processes, and solutions. They forget about the problems that they're solving for their customers and clients. They find a cure for which there's no known disease. That's why you should regularly take stock and ask the question, what customer problem are we solving here? Now, be sure you identify their real problem. Don't just offer a convenient solution to an easier problem. For example, suppose you offer a loyalty discount to regular customers. It's a good idea. Now, that might represent a real benefit to those customers. It helps them save money, and that means that it does solve a real problem. But if you force them to bring a membership card with them to gain the discount, that doesn't solve their problem. It solves yours, but it doesn't help solve theirs. Here's a simple exercise you can do with your team to test how much time you spend looking at solving customers' problems. Get all your team to look at the activity in the past week and count how many hours you spent on work that solved real customer problems. And if you don't deal directly with customers, you can include time helping other people who do, but only include activities that help them solve customer problems. Okay, what percentage of your time as a team is spent solving customer problems? If it's not high enough, and I bet you it won't be, ruthlessly work at eliminating all this other dead time. Because if you don't solve their problems, they'll find somebody else who will. Okay, in addition to this exercise, here are three questions that you can ask yourself and your team. Number one, what are, what are the real problems you solve for your customers? Are you sure? Are you sure these are real problems and how do you know? That's question one. Question two, what other problems do they have in their lives that you could solve for them? Number three, what activities are clearly not solving customer problems and how can you eliminate or reduce them? The last thing to do in opening up, take a leap, because sometimes it takes a revolution, not an evolution. 
As David Lloyd George said, don't be afraid to take a big step if one is indicated. You can't cross a chasm in two small jumps. Let me tell you a story about self-driving cars. In March 2018, one of Uber's self-driving cars in Arizona, in the USA, hit and killed a woman, Elaine Hertzberg, and she was wheeling her bicycle at night across a four-lane highway. And of course, there was, a, there was an investigation by the USA's National Transportation Safety Board, and it found that the car did detect her six seconds before the crash, but didn't realize emergency braking was needed until just 1.3 seconds before the impact. And even then, it might have been enough time, except the emergency braking system had been disabled, leaving responsibility for braking with a, with a human driver called the monitor, who was an Uber employee, who was supposed to be as alert as a hands-on driver and should have applied the brakes in emergency situations. Unfortunately, and sadly, for Hertzberg who died, the employee, instead of paying attention to the road, was watching a streaming video on her smartphone and she didn't apply the brakes in time to save Hertzberg's life. So it was a tragic incident. It also serves to highlight the importance of Google's goal for its self-driving cars, that it wants to build technology that's so good that it never needs a human to intervene. In fact, the ultimate goal is that a human can't intervene because a car won't have brakes or a steering wheel. And there's no doubt that self-driving cars are coming in our future, but most car makers are taking smaller steps on the journey to a fully autonomous car. Your own car might already have things like cruise control, blind spot warnings, even some level of automatic driving, automatic braking. But you still need to keep your mind on the job, your hands on the steering wheel and your eyes on the road. And there's a reason that most car makers aren't putting all their efforts into the fully autonomous car. It's because it's an exceptionally difficult goal to achieve. Even if cars were autonomous 99% of the time, the final 1% that removes the human driver is exponentially more difficult. But that final 1% also gives us the biggest gains because it's the only way that we can realize the full potential of self-driving cars. For example, it's the only way that would let you sleep in your car while it's driving you overnight on a long journey across the Nullarbor. So that's why Google's determined to focus on that ambitious goal, even though it's very difficult. We're still a long way from achieving it, but if we want that in the future, the only way to get there is to plan with that vision in mind. So, in the financial services industry, advisors tell their clients past results are no indicator of future performance. And this applies even more strongly when you're steering your team and your organization in an uncertain future. It's only natural to base your outlook on the present and even the past, but you can't always get there from here. So evolution works in the natural world, but it takes a long time. And sometimes you need a revolution. And that means leaving the past behind, at least for the moment, and planning from the future. Because your future success might come from taking quantum leaps in the, in the true sense of the word quantum. So many people think that a quantum leap is a big leap, but in fact, a quantum is the smallest indivisible amount of something in an interaction. So in the world of subatomic particles, a quantum leap is tiny, but it's a leap from point A to point B. It's a single jump without anything in between. It's like being at point A and you suddenly appear at point B without taking any steps in between. Now, this is very different from my experience in the physical world. You know, if you want to go from A to B, you can get there from foot at a steady speed, which is linear, and you can get there in a car, which can accelerate past us at increasing speed, but there's nothing that can get us from A to B instantly. 
But this limitation doesn't apply to the ideas in your head. You can imagine things that don't exist now, and you can plan for a future that seems impossible right now. Sam Schilace is the CEO of Box.com, which is like a competitor to Dropbox. He said about seemingly impossible ideas, if 80% think it's the dumbest idea ever and should die in a fire, and 20% think it's the best thing they've ever seen, you've probably got something. Now, this kind of thinking really requires a different way of thinking. It's not easy to break out of the old mindset. So I'll give you some examples. So most businesses try to be slightly better than their competitors, but the most innovative companies break free from the pack by carving out a completely new market space. Most employees, when they ask for pay rise, they're asking for a percentage increase on their current salary. Instead, they could create massive value for the organization and ask for a salary that's aligned with that value, regardless of their current salary, their past salary, or what their colleagues are being paid. Most people who are promoted to CEO from an operational role expect it to be just like a more senior version of their previous role, and they're shocked. They're shocked to discover that it brings a completely new focus. So they, they're now thinking about external stakeholders like shareholders and investors, the media and the government. Okay, my three questions for you. Number one, where are you playing small? Were you only thinking of small incremental steps rather than a quantum leap? with your team, with your organization, with your industry, even with yourself. Question two, what impossible quantum leap would transform your entire industry and the way that it serves customers? Number three, what quantum leap from outside your industry would transform every business within your industry? So we've come to the end of this. There are five things that we talked about in terms of opening up your mindset for yourself and your team. Let me quickly summarize them for you. Number one is about sunk costs versus best returns. Don't hold on to your assets just because you've invested a lot of time in them. Only keep those that give you the best return now. Change manager versus change agent. Be a change agent who sees change as a normal part of life and embrace or lead change whenever you see something new or different. Obstacles versus opportunities. Look for possibility and opportunity in everything new so you can leverage it to add value. Pushing products versus solving problems. Go back to basics and understand the problems that you really solve for your customers. And next step versus quantum leap. Be willing to take quantum leaps that go further than just building on where you are now. As I said, this mindset comes naturally for disruptive thinkers. It might not be so natural for you, but it's an important shift to make to be fit for the future. I hope you enjoyed that and found something valuable for your personal and your professional life. And if you did get some value from it, please share the love by reviewing and rating it in the place that you get your podcasts. That really does help to promote it to other people as well. And if you want to engage with me to go deeper with these ideas, let's talk. Especially now as we're all trying to navigate and lead our way through this time of great uncertainty, it's more important than ever before to be able to offer clarity and confidence so that we can really be fit for the future. I offer conference keynote presentations, both online and in person, workshops and masterclasses, mentoring and coaching. And you can find out more at gihanperera.com. And while you're there, you can also find my blog, my newsletter, more episodes from this podcast and some public online presentations. And these are all designed to help you leverage the potential of your organization, your team and, of course, yourself as well. Stay safe and healthy and I'll see you in the future. This is Gihan Pereira. Bye for now.
for show notes, past episodes, and more, visit gihanperera.com. And remember, great minds don't think alike.